Hello, you're welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Onshaw.net. The top 50 most influential people in education. Where are they now? Part 2. In 2011, kind of out of the blue, the Irish Times published a list of the 50 most influential people in education, according to them. And I thought it might be interesting to see where they are now. A couple of episodes ago, I covered the top 10 and now I'm moving on to numbers 11 to 20. I hope you enjoy this and uh, let's get on with it. Hello, hello. You're very welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Onshaw.net. This is Simon Lewis and I am about to count uh, up from 11 to 20 where the 50 most influential people in education from 2011 are now. Um, I'm going to start off uh, with number 11 and that is John Walsh. Um, In 2011, John Walsh after about 40 years as an education journalist, jumped at the chance, as he said, of becoming an advisor to Rory Quinn, who was then the education minister. According to John Walsh's book, An Education, he met Quinn in Buswell's hotel uh, in Dublin, uh, just across from the Dáil, and he said, uh, Rory Quinn said to him, I want you to be my special advisor. The salary is €80,000 and I'd like you to start immediately. And according to the Irish Times article, it launched him as Quinn's right-hand man and possibly the second most important person in education. And after Quinn resigned in 2014, Walsh, well, after his education, went back to the Irish Independent. Um, He seems to be still writing, uh, but he's mainly in the university sector these days. So that's a very, very, very quick summary of where John Walsh is. A really good education journalist, in fairness. Um, So where is he now and would he make the list today? Well, uh, he seems, as far as his LinkedIn profile uh, goes, he seems to be still writing, mainly in third level in that sector. So we don't see too much of him in the Irish Independent anymore. Would he make the list today? I don't think he would, um, because he's just not writing regularly in the Irish media and he definitely isn't advising any ministers anymore. Uh, Definitely back in 2011, I think he deserved his place. Um, But as quickly as Rory Quinn's star shone and fell fell apart, uh, Walsh's star faded along with him. Number 12, the parents of special needs children. Well, I think it's fair to say an entire article could be written about special education. But it's worth quoting the first paragraph of that Irish Times article written 12 years ago at this stage, 12 years ago. The requirements of special needs children were recognised in Irish education only when some brave parents sought to assert their rights in court. The battle for those rights continues. At present, parents are battling to retain special needs assistance in schools. Now, if you were to write that paragraph in 2023, apart from saying children with additional needs instead of special needs children, I don't think 
it would feel out of place in an article in 2023. And unfortunately, things have gone from bad to worse as the supports available for children with additional needs have been cut every year, often by stealth, but often just cut. 2016 probably was the cruelest of the years for children with additional needs when the NCSE, who were responsible for allocating children with additional needs with the supports they need, changed a number of rules in terms of gaining supports and things have never been the same since. They have got absolutely dreadful and I have written to, I would say, every journalist in the country to ask them to investigate that year. What was it about 2016 in particular? I know in 2011, when there was a, when we were in the middle of a recession, things could be justified. But in 2016, the decision, there was a deliberate decision to um, to change the way the NCSE uh, delivered their supports for the worse in 2017 that continued and has really continued since um i mean it, it's it's i i mean i don't really understand why not a single journalist has decided they were going to investigate because i genuinely believe there's a scandal in there that has yet to emerge um i mean i don't know what it is i don't have any you know leads but definitely there was a deliberate decision in 2016 to absolutely change the power of the CINO, to change the way children got their supports, um, to uh, to add additional administration staff simply for, for bureaucracy rather than actually to aid anyone, to actually put buffers in place and red tape in place and uh, preventative measures to give children what they needed. Um, I keep telling people, and I suppose as time goes on and there's fewer principles out there that were working back in the early days of the NCSE, how good the service was uh, before the recession and how dreadful it became. And I don't think, I think as time goes on, they believe me less and less as supports because as they believe how bad things are is normal. Anyway, the article said the politicians worry that cuts in this very sensitive area will see them cast as cruel and heartless. But it didn't really stop them. Even creating a Minister for Special Education portfolio a couple of years ago served only to create a divide and conquer situation where nobody is claiming real responsibility for special education anymore. Not even the Minister for Special Education herself, who in fairness, and I, I, I have no time particularly for um, the number one, the party Fianna Gael that she, that she belongs to, or for the Minister herself, because again, I mean, there, there was a famous story about Josepha Madigan um, you know and it, I don't know why it turned me off or well I suppose it does and maybe it's my bias showing a little bit there was a story uh, a few years ago where the priest didn't show up for mass on a Sunday and Josepha Madigan decided she would take the mass now there's a couple of things about that story. You know, some people will go, ah, fair play to her, a woman taking the initiative and so on in the Catholic Church and blah, 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 blah. But like, it didn't sit well with me. I mean, to me, that seemed like a very obvious publicity stunt. I felt it was disrespectful to the church she belongs to, whether or not I agree or anyone agrees with the Catholic Church's stance uh, of women leading church services. It just doesn't happen. And if you claim to be a practicing Catholic, you have to respect that part of the religion, even if you don't like it. Uh, I mean, I always say to people, if they don't, if they want to have female priests, just become a Protestant. You know, it there's no like Catholicism and Christianity or, or Church of Ireland or Protestantism. They're, they're, they, they, they're the same thing. There's very, very little in the difference between them. They're just branches of each other. Um, you know, people 
often talk about, uh, you know, different religions like Judaism, which would be one I'd be more familiar with. Do you know that if I didn't like the inequalities in Orthodox Judaism between men and women, I would just join the liberal branch of uh, of Judaism or progressive branch of Judaism, which is what my family did actually in the 1980s. Uh, they were uh, came from uh, my dad's side of the family came from an Orthodox Jewish side. My mum was from uh, the liberal side, and. Um, interestingly I don't know if it's interesting at all to anyone listening to this uh, I remember my dad was the very first person who lit the Sabbath candles in the synagogue and um, you know this is a, this was always seen as the, a female duty and uh, it was seen as a you know a step towards further equality uh, when it came to uh, liberal Judaism um, but anyway I'm gone off on a tangent about Joseph Madding I was just I actually started that by saying I have no time for the person <laughs> for, for her uh, in particular I have no uh, massive feelings for her at all but you know, in fairness to her, as I think I started that sentence, that very long-winded sentence, um, you know, she has put in a few good things uh, for, not uh, for children with additional, very, very little and not enough to considering her portfolio. I mean, if her portfolio is simply um, special education, she needs, she could do a hell of a lot more than she's actually doing. It's like breadcrumbs instead of actual massive reform, which is what is absolutely needed. Um if we move back to the um, NCSE, because uh, like this is just another example of how terrible the system is getting and getting worse and worse and worse. Last year, as so 2022, a court case forced the NCSE, the NCSE that is, not the uh, HSE, to honour assessment of need referrals. But be- rather than doing that, because the NCSE are so useless, the NCSE decided they just lumped them onto schools. And because of that, and they did, and, and schools for some reason didn't just say no. Well, uh, because they're um, madly enough, and I don't really understand this. The stakeholders let this happen, you know. Because there's uh, this is not going to give children any good. By the way, this this scheme, it's it's uh, going to give children absolutely nothing in terms of resources. And um, you know, the ironic thing is the NCSE doesn't trust schools to say what resources they actually need. Uh, in any other capacity within it but for this assessment of need the uh, report that schools are expected to write does count for something and it it just feel it, it seems to be completely illegal it doesn't seem to have any weight in terms of, of law but the NCSE are so poor they don't actually have any data on children uh, with additional needs and um, therefore they try to lump it onto schools and again uh, schools don't are not psychologists we don't have the right, I would suggest, to be filling in AON stuff, uh, which uh, is supposed to provide children with the resources they need when they're young. And again, parents are having to go to court to stop the madness. Would they make the list now? <laughs> I think it's pretty clear they would. It's a disgrace that we should be, uh, the parents of children with additional needs should be in a list like this. Where I can, where I possibly can, I defend educators uh, within a very, very broken education systems. Um, but I will go back to that AOL and uh, debacle. Schools did have an opportunity. I kind of said, oh, the represented bodies didn't do anything about it. But schools themselves had an opportunity last year to put a stop to that AOM debacle. And they actually chose not to. They chose not to. And I and the reason I can say I cho- they chose not to is because I was one of the first schools 
uh, to be receiving one of these things. And uh, when I found out what it was about, I wrote to every single school to tell them about the situation. I asked them to get in touch with me uh, to, uh, about the whole thing when it came clear that the stakeholders were supporting this uh, initiative. And of the 70 odd schools that were in this so-called pilot, it wasn't even a pilot, only uh, 14 of them uh, spoke to me and all 14 who spoke to me um, told me that the whole thing was an absolute mess. We reported that to uh, all the rest of the schools. We reported it to the stakeholders. And guess what? It just came in because, do you know what? Had the other 56 schools had gone to the bother of just sending me a quick email to say, yes, it's a complete mess, or even it isn't a complete mess, we think it's a good idea, at least we would have had every school who was in the pilot Honestly speaking, instead, what we got was the Department of Education coming out saying, everyone thinks it's wonderful. It only takes 20 minutes and so on. Lies, absolute lies. But schools, in this case, schools, I have to say, um, are at fault here. And uh, shame on those schools for not coming forward. Anyway, uh, it's down to parents, unfortunately. Um, And I'm not going to say as always, but almost as always. All children, I think, should get the supports they require no matter what I mean I think it's mad I um when I went to Finland last year um schools had a nurse a psychologist a social worker on site working directly with children in schools in Ireland you have a psych like if you're lucky to even have access to a psychologist you might get one assessment or two assessments a year in most cases <laughs> forget about having a nurse and you will only get a social worker when things are so bad uh, that you have to make a, a child protection referral that's not how to run a system um you know i've i've been looking at other countries uh, just as uh, and what's the it's those supports the psychological supports the medical supports the social work supports that are available to children it's amazing how how I, I, I mean, it's amazing how children actually get through childhood in this country if they have a slight, um, even if they have a small educational need um, or additional educational need. It's um, it, it's amazing. But essentially, I all, all we can do is say that children should get the supports they require, but parents can't rely on anyone anymore to do that except themselves. And to be honest, I hope they succeed. Number 13. Anne Looney. At the time of this list, Anne Looney was the Chief Executive of the National Council of Curriculum and Assessment, the NCCA. And at that time, the big story of the day was junior cert reform, something that I believe is still on the agenda today. I'm not really um, clued in about second level um, and I tend to avoid them. I'm not sure if she expected uh, to be thrown in head first into some primary reforms uh, with the literacy and numeracy strategy, uh, which was launched uh, around 2011. Uh, it was also the launchpad of the new curriculum that is about to be unleashed upon us in 2026. It's back in 2011, they were talking about this new curriculum thanks to the literacy and numeracy strategy which went, well, <laughs> let's uh, talk about that because the first of these uh, initiatives was the primary language curriculum, which was beset with huge issues, including several members of their team walking out during its production um, because they couldn't uh, stand over what was being produced. And as teachers, we know only too well the disaster 
of the rollout of that primary language curriculum, with most of us resigning to the fact that it never, it's never going to get off the ground. It's kind of where it's ever, it's kind of the best shape it's going to be. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's, it's like, um, uh, do you know that Father Ted episode when they, uh, when Father Dougal wins the uh, raffle to win a car, uh, they fix the raffle and, um, I think they crashed, doesn't he crash the car uh, pretty quickly and they spend their time just uh, with the hammer kind of knocking it, knocking it, knocking it, knocking it, knocking it. And at the very end, they go, ah, it wasn't too bad, uh, you know, showing a part of the car. And then they um, zone back on the car and uh, there's like, you know, it's an absolute mess. That's the primary language curriculum in a metaphor, I would sort of say. In 2017, Deputy Thomas Byrne asked the Minister for Education and Skills his plans to ensure an investigation takes place into bullying concerns raised by current and former staff members of the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment. And I have a link to the in the show notes to the article about that in the RTE News. Now, these concerns would have taken place during Looney's tenure, though there's absolutely no evidence to suggest Looney played any part in this episode. In fact, Looney moved on from the NCS, uh, NCCA before these issues came to light and eventually became the Executive Dean of Education in DCU in 2016. Now, I've met Anne on a number of occasions and I really like her. I really like her. She totally has her finger on the pulse on most things as far as I'm concerned. And I imagine the only area where we disagree with is patronage, um, as she is the chairperson of a Catholic school, which requires one to state they are happy to uphold that ethos. She's also happy to continue this bizarre entry system into DCU for teacher training, where members of reformed Christian faiths can get into college with lower points in their leaving cert than any other belief systems, whatever that religion or lack of religion might be. However, it can't be denied that Looney could claim to be the most influential person in education of this generation. She's been at the forefront of educational leadership since 2001, and there are not too many people who can say that. So would she make the list today? Well, <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious, yes. Looney is the Dean of Education in the biggest face-to-face -face initial teacher training uh, school in the country. And I imagine if DCU jumped, the other training colleges would follow. However, her influence stretches back over 20 years and shows no signs of abating. Number 14, John Coulihan. John Coulihan is the first person on this list that is no longer with us. Coulihan died in 2018 and his obituary in the Irish Times recognised him as one of the most influential figures in Irish education. In 2011, Coulihan was handpicked by Rory Quinn to chair the Forum on Patronage and Pluralism, the entity that was charged in diversifying the primary education system away from the Catholic Church, which controlled over 90% of primary schools at the time. Initially, Quinn and Coulihan and the Catholic Church itself were looking at a figure of about 50% divestment. I think people don't realise how massive this was going to be. Around when this was all being talked about, the church, the Catholic Church themselves, and you can look this up. I mean, this is, this is me just making up a figure out of my head because it would seem unbelievable. They were happy to lose 50% control of their schools. Now, I mean, it's 50% um, too high for me, but I mean, even back then when this was, was mooted, 
I mean, that was a massive big deal considering where we are today. Now, it was quickly reduced <laughs> before the forum got started. But isn't that interesting? You know, that the Catholic Church themselves were very, very happy to reduce their control by 50%. Um, it would have been interesting had that have followed through and what that would have looked like around the country. I, I'm kind of... I kind of think about it sometimes and how it would have worked. I mean, I, I, I don't think it would have. I think in urban areas, I think they possibly would have easily, you know, done the 50% cut. Um, in rural areas, I don't see how it might work. 57% of schools in Ireland are rural, I think. It might be about 57%. And, you know, there isn't, um, you know, there's only one school to go to in a rural area. And in, you know, or maybe two, if uh, it has a bit of a Church of Ireland community. And like in almost all cases, um, they are Catholic or Church of Ireland. So, you know, that would mean 100% of rural schools would probably have to become um, multi-denominational for this to work. Uh, so that every single person in the country uh, would be able to send their child to a school where they would be treated with the same respect as anyone else. But look, it didn't happen, um, obviously. Um, and unfortunately, Coolhun's project never got off the ground, in my opinion. Fewer than 10 schools had divested by the time he passed away. In 2015, he said he was disappointed by the lack of progress. And I imagine he'd be even more disappointed with the current targets and the absolute, and I can only describe it as messing around. I've been very critical of Coolhun's plan and I recorded a special set of podcast episodes on its 10-year anniversary of that forum. Uh, again, I'm, uh, I, I'll just um, link that in the Medium article. Uh, that's simonmlewis.medium.com. Uh, you'll find uh, the link to that podcast episode there or you can check your own podcasting uh, platform and search for Patronage and Pluralism Forum 10 years on. Things haven't gotten any better, and I might argue now they may be even worse. Thanks in part to the rising conservatism that's fueled by this nonsensical fear-mongering about multi-denominational schools, but also mainly NIMBYism, which we saw in Malahide and Rohini most recently. The programme for government has targeted only 400 multi-denominational schools by 2030. That's less, uh, that's a roughly 10% of schools and has now prioritised community national schools over other models. Neither of these were in Coulihan's plans and I'd like to think he'd be critical of them. I envisage that one of the biggest stumbling blocks of reaching the conservative figure that we have is that many schools will not want to divest to the community national school model specifically. Uh, rightly or wrongly, the model is rumoured to be over-bureaucratic and the benefits of a more equality-based model are outweighed by the Kafkaesque expectations, that's a hard thing to say, of the ETB model. Uh, anybody I've spoken to who works in the ETB uh, or even in the CNSs that do exist say that they're, one of the biggest concerns they have is how there is a you know, there's, it's over-bureaucratic, there's a lack of trust, it's, uh, there's so much red tape to get anything done. Yes, finance is sorted for them. Yes, ICT is sorted for them. Yes, there's, you know, they can be a bit more equality-based in, 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 uh, in so far it, it isn't, it, that, that all is kosher and all the rest of it. But the amount of bureaucracy and the amount, it's like... I don't know uh, what the word is, but trying to walk through muds to get anything done. Nothing can be done quickly. 
And I've spoken to principals out there who are considering reconfiguring and their biggest concern is they don't want to configure to the community national school. We don't know why that's the model that the uh, Catholic Church and the Department of Education or actually the state uh, seem to prefer over, let's say, models like Educate Together, who would be much more established, much more democratic, um, uh, much more um you know, much more, much more similar, actually, I would suggest to uh, the Catholic uh, education system in, in terms of, you know, structures and things like that. I can understand why the Community National School is the model it was chosen, because, again, it, it, there's more, um, I suppose, it, it, it moves away from this kind of private um, arrangement. So Community National Schools would be more of a, a state um, controlled uh, model, which is what we really want, uh, in effect. But they're really, really going to have to sort out that bureauc- bureaucracy that's around. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting and going, going out, uh, going off again. Um, I my my suggestion would be obviously my preference. Um, if I was you know to start an education system all over again, would be something similar um, to the LEA structures of the um of the uk back in the 1990s and early 2000s um and i would suggest my my preference as well that education centers will become the leas sadly uh Coulihan is no longer with us and his wisdom would be very welcome today would he make the list if he were alive i'd like to think he would the form of patronage and pluralism Feeds needs needs an absolute overhaul, and I think he would have been brave enough and respected enough to have made the necessary changes. Given that there hasn't been an education minister like Rory Quinn, it's difficult to know how high the issue is on the agenda of ministers since then. I'd suggest it's very low down. And given that the forum has not been resurrected in many, many years, suggest it's unlikely it's ever to become a priority. Number 15. Tom Boland and John Hennessy. Tom Boland was the chief executive of the Higher Education Authority and John Hennessy was its chairperson in 2011. Both these men had backgrounds in industry and the Irish Times lauded them as bringing together academia and the world of industry. And um, given both these facts, I don't really have anything to say about them as my podcasts and uh, articles focus on primary education. So yeah. Would they make the list today? Well, I googled both men uh, and Tom Boland appears to be an educational consultant now, which is where people in lofty positions often end up, I believe. I can't find anything on the internet about John Hennessy after 2017 when he was still the chairperson of the HEA. Either way, uh, they wouldn't make my top 50 list anyway, but for all I know, their influence may still be felt in third level. So I wish them very well. Uh, but I'm afraid you don't make my list this time. Number 16, Martin Hanavy. Who, you might ask? In fact, it's certainly the question I asked, interestingly enough, considering who he is. In 2011, Hanavy was being lauded as potentially being Bridget McManus's successor as the Secretary General of the Department of Education. And as many of us now know, that didn't happen, and instead we got Sean of Fialu. In 2011, Hanavy was the uh, the Assistant Secretary General of the Department of Education. He was credited by the Irish Times with authoring one of the most outstanding and radical documents. That's some uh, lauding. Uh, and that was um, 
which was all about school admissions at the time. That was very topical back then. And this was long before the baptism barrier uh, was, was, was around, by the way, just uh, in case people were thinking they had anything to, well, maybe he did have something to do with it later. But in 2011, this was all about, you know, the nepotism of if I, if my daddy went to a certain school, I would get priority over somebody whose daddy didn't go to that school. Um, anyway, at that time, as I said, it's more to do, with, and also it was to do with waiting lists um, and so on. So Hanavi seemed to have a reputation for speaking his mind, imagine that, and not being a yes man to the minister, imagine that, according to the article. Uh, Looking at this time in office, he wasn't afraid to say unpopular things. Gosh, imagine someone like that. Why would they possibly ever do well um, and all the rest of it? Um, I, I Thankfully, luckily, the people that represent us now have learned from such folly and they never say unpopular things and they never uh, do anything that wouldn't be um, that would be speaking their mind. Imagine doing that. Uh, and they've certainly learned to be a yes man. Uh, so, uh, you know, Hanavi, obviously not knowing uh, those sort of things, didn't become the secretary general. I'm not sure if that's the reason why, but one can only assume that that's the case. But thankfully, our stakeholders have learnt their lesson and they ensure that they just do whatever they're told by the minister at the time. Anyway, after the moratorium on the post of responsibility, he said at an NAPD conference at the secondary school's IPPN that he couldn't envisage a time where half the staff in schools had posts of responsibility. Uh, which is a big thing to say at the time because uh, back before, again, some people are probably too uh, young to remember this, into, uh, up until about 2008, at any staff primary level, I'd say about about 50, nearly 50% of people had posts of responsibilities. He called on teachers' performance to be assessed every three years. And yes, later he was involved in outlining Richard Bruton's four options. For, oh, so he was involved in the um, baptism barrier, outlining Richard Bruton's four options for how schools could discriminate uh, on access to school. Um, so for those of you who don't remember that, Richard Bruton at the minister, uh, when the baptism barrier came up, he uh, offered four options for consultation where uh, things could stay the same so everyone could discriminate uh, so that um, option number two which only minority religions could discriminate on access so basically uh, Catholic schools weren't going to be allowed to uh, prioritise Catholic children but Church of Ireland Jewish and Muslim schools could um, option three three was some sort of I can't actually remember what it was it was some mishmash of certain percentages or it's catchment areas or something like that if I remember correctly and then number four was to absolutely say no school could discriminate in access now Richard Bruton's preference uh, if I remember correctly was uh, for option B uh, which was what actually happened in the end despite the fact that the majority of the consultation views uh, wanted option four which was to get rid of it completely Um but anyway, as um, there was a newspaper article I saw in this where uh, on one of the consultations, it was it was noted that there was a very, very high representation of Protestant faiths at the consultation. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. Anyway, would Hanavi make the list today? Um, well, uh, Hanavi uh, is the second person on our list that I know of that passed away. He passed away earlier this year in 2023. His legacy certainly remains. I do wonder what the education world would have looked like had he have been the Secretary General instead of Sean O'Fiaulu because I would suggest Sean O'Fiaulu didn't speak his mind. Maybe he did. I, I, I have no basis for that other than, uh, you know, I suppose his um, time in the office but school admissions still remain a complete mess. I wonder 
what he really thought of Bruton's decision in the end, despite the majority of people wishing that no school could discriminate. Number 17, Chuck Feeney. It's kind of, I don't know, weird in a way, the way things go in life, um, that there's these little moments that are obviously just coincidences. And I can see why people um, believe in a sort of a supernatural kind of world, because just as I was uh, about to start this little profile piece on Chuck Feeney, um, I was um, scrolling on Twitter and an announcement was made that he just passed away. Um, I can safely say that if it weren't for Chuck Feeney, I probably couldn't have stayed in teaching and my son would almost certainly be sitting at the back of a classroom every day of the week. For those of you who don't know who Chuck Feeney was, let me tell you who he was. He was a philanthropist who donated a lot of money to Irish education and one million dollars went to educate together. It's really hard to say one million dollars without sounding like Dr. Evil in Austin Powers. But anyway, uh, it went to educate together, which allowed them to exist as an organisation for a number of years. I can say safely, I owe my career to him. Outside of my life, Feeney donated over one billion dollars so hard to not do this as Dr. Evil, into higher education. And much of that is evidenced in some of the buildings that are around universities in Ireland. Would he make the list today? His donations to Educate Together dried up a number of years ago, so his efforts at primary level are really no longer influencing the sector. And unfortunately, with that in mind, he probably wouldn't make the list today. I guess because um, he only died, I can say rest in peace. I, I'm sure, uh, uh, or um, the others who've passed away uh, since, I mean, I should say that too. Uh, but I, I guess, you know, when you have feel you have a connection, when somebody's had such an influence on your personal life uh, to the point that uh, your career wouldn't exist without him, uh, despite him having no idea that uh, that was the case, um, you feel a little sadder when someone like that passes away. Um, okay. Number 18. Anya Highland. Well, speaking of people that influenced my life, uh, this is another person straight away who without her, I would not have a career either. But Anya Highland was big news in 2011 for her work in higher education at the time. However, for me, the name Anya Highland will always be associated with Educate Together and multi-denominational education. As most people know, Highland was one of the founders of what became Educate Together, along with Bill Highland, uh, then the chief statistician in the Department of Education, and Michael and Pat Johnson and Desmond Green. These are what we would known as the four fathers and mothers, uh, the four people, I don't know what the word is, of uh, Educate Together, um, for which we I, anyway, and I'm sure many of us are eternally grateful. Um, again, without their work, uh, who knows what the education system would look like today. Highland recently wrote a book, A Brave New Vision for Education in Ireland, which I've linked in my show notes, The Dawkey School Project, 1974 to 1984. She wrote that in 2021 with Desmond Green, and she remains a key voice in education. 
Would you make the list today? I, I would absolutely say yes. Um, along with Anne Looney, uh, I think Anya Highland is one of the bravest and influential voices in the education system, a key voice, I would say, in education. And I hope she continues to be that voice that challenges the status quo. Number 19, Sean O'Fialu. Now, he's already been mentioned a couple of times in this list so far, so it would be mad to think he's not going to make the list this time. But who is Sean O'Fialu? Um, O'Fialu took over uh, the reins uh, of the Secretary General from Bridget McManus uh, in the Department of Education. And according to the Irish Times, he was very much admired by Rory Quinn and highly tipped for the position, much like Martin Hannity. At the time, he was credited with the depoliticising the unit in charge of school buildings and imposing a new policy, which meant politicians wouldn't meet with school delegations. And this stopped schools from being in, uh, school buildings from being influenced by the politicians of the day. That's really interesting and really kind of... Do you know when something really small like that, you know, uh, doesn't get recognised? I think that is amazing and really interesting. And Sean O'Fiaulu was in charge of that. I think it's shocking. You know, and I, find, I do find it shocking. Like in my job, there's often the case I have to ring politicians to get things done. And I just find that bizarre that to get anything done, you have to get a politician. And you might, and if you lived, let's say you live in an area where you aren't represented by a TD, um, you might not get things done. You know, um, so when you, so this is what creates the political system that we have, where, you know, you, you have um, hospitals in places where there, there doesn't need to be hospitals. You have, um you know, school, you, well, you used to have, and from what I can gather with this, you used to get school buildings were built, um, you know, to, um, uh, you know, because a politician was in the local area and it looked good that he was doing up his local school. I think I remember actually when I moved to Carlo, there was a motorway being built from, was it, uh, you know, from Carlo down to Waterford and it, it was known, I can't remember the minister's name and, you know, someone who's listening to this will be shouting out his name at the moment, but it's known as his motorway because he built it when he was the minister. Almost, I mean, there was probably no need for it at the time, but it got him from Waterford to Dublin. <laughs> Maybe, I don't I don't know. It's amazing how uh, Ireland works uh, like that. But Sean O'Fiaulu, um stopped that from happening with school buildings. Um, now, to be honest, I, I you know, it just the influence is now, I don't know where the influence is. Uh, I, I find we need to also go a bit further with this, that school buildings uh, projects shouldn't happen, um, uh, you know, to private entities at all. So that's, that the state should only build schools that are controlled by the state. So that let's say there is a school that's controlled by a private entity let's say, a church, that if they want the building to be built or they want a res uh, renovations or they want a new building, that they need to uh, ensure that the Department of Education uh, owns that building after, not the private entity. However, he didn't go that far. Ophialu uh, did continue his work as the Secretary General of the Department of Education and he was involved in all sorts of big decisions from managing the victims of church abuse in schools in tr uh, to trying to end paper pay slips for teachers. It's quite the eclectic role. Uh, he did leave the position in 2021 to take up a position in the University of Maynooth, but that was not without controversy as it was claimed that the role was specifically created for him to go on secondment while still being paid his salary of €215,998. Sorry, 250... <laughs> I can't even read numbers anymore. €215,998. 
A lot of money uh, for a lecturing position. I don't know many lecturers that are on that salary. Would he make the list today? Well, while he still is in the University of Maynooth, it's likely he is influential at third level. However, for me, at primary level, he would not make the list today. Finally, number 20, Hugh Brady. Hugh Brady was the president of UCD in 2011, and the Irish Times started off by saying, had the list been made five years previously, he would have been in the top five. Brady finished the position in 2013, moving on to other universities, and he is currently the president of Imperial College London. Would he make the list today? Well, he wouldn't have made a top 50 primary education list in 2011, so no change there. Pity to end on someone like that uh, for primary education. I'm sure he's a fantastic person. <laughs> That's not nothing to do with him. But I think there were just more interesting people at primary level than this guy. Um, but there you go. So uh, that is of number 11 to number 20. And um, we will see who's going to be from 21 to 30 in a couple of weeks time. So there you have it, uh, the list from 11 to 20. I think some really interesting characters in there. And I mean, particularly, I was really particularly pleased that two uh, of those people that I particularly gave uh, a big highlight to were women, uh, Anya Highland and Anne Looney, who are still remain hugely influential in, in Irish education. Um, and um, kind of interesting how their, how their influence has uh, been over such a long period of time, whereas uh, many of the uh, men in this list, I think the rest of the people in here were men, um, had a very limited influence. Um, I don't know what that says, maybe it's just a coincidence, um, much like when, you know, Chuck Feeney, when I was covering him, he just passed away as just before, I uh, just as I was about to start writing about him. Um, but uh, really, really two really, really good people uh, in that top 20. I, I would certainly, if I was making a top 50 list, I would be putting them, I, I, I don't think it would be hard to put them in the top 10. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that uh, countdown. I like countdown shows uh, generally, so I hope you're enjoying uh, my foray into this t- uh, 50 most influential people. Um, and uh, as I said, I'll be back again with uh, number 21 to number 30 in a few weeks' time. I do have a, an interview in the meantime, which I'm going to be publishing. Really excited about this. Probably the probably the most important person. I know I don't know if he's the most important person, but definitely important to a lot of people. Um, very interesting character a guy called Dan Carroll, who is the co-founder of Clever.com. And if you haven't heard of Clever.com, I'd really advise you tune into that interview and learn about it because I can say hand on heart, his product, Clever.com, completely changed the way I did technology in my school. And I can only recommend that you hear what he has to say. Anyway, until then, thanks so much for listening. And I look forward to chatting again in a few weeks time. All the very best. Bye bye.